learning from Mary as we've been studying the Magnificat during this Advent season. We began by talking about the difference between us and our brothers and sisters who are Roman Catholic and how we approach things differently and then a little bit of how the Orthodox views Mary. And uh, then we talked about the fact that um, Mary talked about her soul magnifying the Lord and her spirit rejoicing. And we talked about the two parts of the, the inner person and how um, the spirit is the place where um, we connect with God. And the spirit is that which is dead in us, really, until it's quickened. And we wondered about ways that we still need our spirits to be quickened. Um, and then we talked last week about the fact that Mary said, God has done great things and realized that the only way we know what we know about God is that he either tells us or he does something. And by watching what a person does, we learn something about what that person's about. And so as we thought about the things that Mary talks about, we thought about how God was disclosing himself by the things that he has done. So we're going to end today with the last part of Mary's song. And having begun from the start of the Magnificat with the verse, Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. All the way to the end of it, one of the ways that Mary reflects on what God has done is she says this, He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Remember is a great word in the Bible, and it is very often associated with God and the covenant that God makes with people, the ways that God promises he will do things. And then we have the saints in the Old Testament, the prophets, who will call on God and they will say, please remember us, please remember your covenant. And so it becomes a, a very important sort of a biblical word to remember. And then in the New Testament, we're told to remember Jesus by taking the bread and the cup. So that's a way that we call to mind um, the things that God has done, the ways that Jesus has come uh, to rescue us. And so we remember him. So Mary says, he has remembered his mercy and that's probably, if it were in the Old Testament, it's that great word hesed that means covenant loyalty, the, the pity of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the deep love of God. It's a really full word. So Mary says that he spoke this to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So why don't we just poke at that a little bit this morning and just say, really? To Abraham's descendants forever. Do you read the fine print when you sign up for something? I I think by design you're not supposed to read the fi fine print, right? They make it so fine you can't read it. They make it so long you can't read it. But then you have to check the box. I, I've read and accept. So, you know, you have that little moment of dishonesty where you say, I have read, I have glanced through, whatever. Um, I, I think lawyers and probably accountants read the fine print, right, Bob? Because you should. I'm going to tell you about the fine print of the Christmas story. Because when we come to this little piece of Mary's prayer, and she says, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Don't we go, what? R really? Is, is this still true? 
is is God remembering his faithfulness to Abraham's descendants forever? When we come into the New Testament, we begin to see some fine print. And it is appropriate fine print. It is God's fine print. It's the fine print, in many cases, of a letter like Romans. And Romans is one of those letters that scholars love to take apart. It is full of doctrine. It's full of theology. And uh, it then sort of issues into some other letters that Paul wrote as well as others. Um, but Romans is, is worth the study. It's worth carefully going through. There's one well-known pastor in the past, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached on the book of Romans, I think, for five years. Um, and, you know, if you didn't like Romans, you could go check out another church for five years and come back and you'd still be, still be doing Romans, but... So I want to talk to you this morning about Romans um, because the part of the Old Testament that Mary is referring to when she says that God has promised his faithfulness to Abraham and his generations forever and ever and ever, here's what it says back in Genesis 12. God said to Abram, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The point of God's favor to Abraham was the blessing of the world. And the mistake that Israel made in the Old Covenant was that they thought when God favored them, that he meant that they were his favorite. And so they had a sense of self-importance and they had a a sense of exclusion that no one else was going to be privy to the blessings that God had. And yet what God had said to Abraham at the very beginning was, "It's, it's because I want to bless the whole world that I'm going to bless you. And then sort of halfway through the story, which is where we are, um, Mary says, God made this promise to Abraham and his descendants forever. And we wonder, well, when, when is this going to morph into the blessing of the whole world? And is there a blessing that was God's blessing to Abraham's descendants only? Or what do we do with that? So that's where we need to get into the fine print. And the fine print in Romans, um, I'm finding in Romans chapter 3 and 4. Um, just before you get to the the third chapter, there's a little paragraph or so where we begin to get what, what God wants us to understand. And I'm going to suggest something to you that as I read this story and comment on it, um, I'll invite you to replace the word Jew or Jewish with Christian or church or evangelical and just see what difference and nuance there would be in the way that you read this. So is this only um, for Jewish people? Maybe Jewish Christians, maybe not Jewish Christians? Um, how, How might we apply it today to ourselves? Well, just put the word Christian in there, or church, or evangelical, and see if the shoe fits, so to speak. So here, here's what Paul says. If you're brought up Jewish... And this is from the message, so it's Eugene Peterson's 
sort of spin, but it's a, it's a faithful translation. Um, and here's how he understands it. If you're brought up Jewish, okay, or Christian, or a church person, or an evangelical, or a fundamentalist, right? if you're brought up that way, don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your religion and take it easy, feeling smug, because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God, informed on the latest doctrines. I have a special word of caution for you, who are sure that you have it all together and yourselves, and because you know God's revealed word inside and out, feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys and dark nights and confused emotions to God. While you are guiding others, who's going to guide you? I'm quite serious. While you're preaching, don't steal, are you stealing? Who would suspect you? Same with adultery, same with idolatry. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with eloquent talk about God and his law. Boy, that is telling, isn't it? Call it church, call it Christianity, call it faith, and you can get away with about anything. That's frightening. Circumcision, the surgical ritual that marks you as a Jew, is great if you live in accord with God's law. But if you don't, it's worse than not having God's law. Um, the uncircumcised who keep God's ways are as good as the circumcised, in fact, better. Better to keep God's law uncircumcised than break it circumcised. Don't you see? It's not the cut of the knife that makes you a Jew. You become a Jew by who you are. It's the mark of God on your heart, not of a knife on your skin that makes you a Jew. And recognition comes from God, not legalistic critics. So what difference does it make? Who's a Jew and who's not? Who's been named in God's ways and who hasn't? As it turns out, it makes a lot of difference but not the difference so many have assumed. First, there's the matter of being in charge of writing down and caring for God's revelation, these, these holy scriptures. So what if in the course of doing that, some of those Jews abandoned their post? God didn't abandon them. Do you think their faithlessness cancels out his faithfulness? Not on your life. Depend on it. God keeps his word even when the whole world is lying through its teeth. Scripture says the same. Your words stand fast and true. Rejection doesn't faze you. But if our wrongdoing only underlines and confirms God's right doing, shouldn't we be commended for helping out? Since our bad words um, make, don't even make a dent in his good words, isn't it wrong of God to back us up to the wall and hold us to our word? These questions come up. The answer to such questions is no, a most emphatic no. How else would things ever get straightened out if God didn't do the straightening? It's simply perverse to say, if my lies serve to God to show off God's truth all the more gloriously, then why blame me? I'm doing God a favor. Some people are actually saying those things, claiming that we go around saying the more evil we do, the more good God does, so let's just do it. That's pure slander, as I'm sure you'll agree. So where does that put us? Do we Jews get a better break than the others? Not really. Basically all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, 
start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture needs, leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. Nobody who knows the score, nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. Their throats are gaping graves. Their tongues slick as mudslides. Every word they speak is tinged with poison. They open their mouths and pollute the air. They race for the honor of sinner of the year. Litter the land with heartbreak and ruin. Don't know the first thing about living with others. They never give God the time of day. Kind of brings it home, doesn't it? So the view that Israel was taking was that anyone not Jewish didn't cut it, did not belong in a relationship with God. And then even when the gospel came to people who were not Jewish, the Jewish Christians said, well, surely they also have to be circumcised, right? And Paul was a leading you know, opponent there and said, no, no, no. That's the whole point. Um, the circumcision that God is now interested in is not of the skin, it's of the heart. It's an internal, it's a spiritual circumcision. And there's long New Testament theology about explaining all of that. And we find that the fine print concerning God's covenant is that in the middle of the story, God appears to change the terms, but, but he doesn't. He, he actually returns to and stays with the plan that he had forever and says, now, what I was getting ready for was not the singular blessing of the Jewish people, but the wide blessing to all people of all backgrounds. And when we get into the mature teaching of the New Testament, we find people like Paul saying, so in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Those things do not matter anymore. There's, there's neither male nor female. There's neither a bond person or a free person. Everyone is one in Christ. That's what God has been doing all along. But in the meantime, the Jewish people were considering that they were the favorite and that they alone had access to the covenant of Israel and to God. God was opening it up. And Paul says, so what was the point of being born Jewish? Well, first of all, there's no grand advantage to having been born Jewish. Um, but some things definitely were given to the Jewish people for their responsibility. For example, Paul says, Scripture itself. And he would have been referring to the whole Old Testament as we know it and reminding us that the, the custody of the Old Testament Scriptures was Israel's. Israel was responsible for the revelation that God gave us as humankind. So, so Paul says, yeah, you know, you had a great privilege. The very word of God was committed to you for safekeeping and for recording. But as far as your status is concerned, there's no difference. Now, if I ask you now to go back to what I suggested before I read that and put in the word Christian or church or evangelical in its place, don't we get caught so Paul says to those who were sort of priding in their Jewishness, 
Um, really? If you who know the law break the law, are, are you really still a person of any kind of advantage? Um, and, and here you, you have broken the law, but you're telling other people how to live. And you're also blatantly breaking the law and yet claiming that that's okay. I mean, I don't know what sort of logic Paul's referring to when he says that people are saying, let's just sin so God's grace can be more evident. Um, It'd kind of be a sad character, wouldn't you, if you just went out there and said, my job this week is to be so bad that God's grace needs to shine even brighter. So I'm going to show up and say, God should be thankful to me because I've done terrible things. And it can show how good he is and how important, how wonderful his grace is. Paul says that's what they were thinking and saying, so I, you know, who's going to argue with the Apostle Paul? Well, several people actually would like to argue with the Apostle Paul, but we're not going to. So, so what's the deal here? The state of the church in the West is deplorable, really, isn't it? And when Paul says here, that the way the Jews lived caused the Gentiles um, dismay or to, you know, to turn from God. That's exactly what happened. The wisdom of God's ways was that people who were not in the Jewish community would see the life that was lived in that community and would say, my goodness, they must serve a wonderful God. He's near them. They love him. Their lives are vital. And yet the prophets of the Old Testament, time after time, said, you have taken God's name and dragged it through the mud. You have profaned the name of the Lord. Um, you, have, you have done things while you're waving your Jewishness. Um, you were mistreating the poor. Um, you're you're saying, okay, we'll have a Sabbath, but hurry up, let's get back to work so we can make all kinds of money and 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 then oppress the poor some more. I mean, those are the messages of of the the prophets. And Paul says, if you really want to take pride in being Jewish, yeah, certainly, the custody of God's revelation was yours, and you were responsible to deliver that. But no longer do you need to say I'm Jewish and I've been circumcised because that's really not whatever or whatever mattered. Uh, it was required. It was a sign of your faith. It was not the badge that got you favor with God. In fact, later on in Romans, Paul says, well, let's talk about Abraham. Was Abraham circumcised when God blessed him? No. God made his covenant with Abraham before he was circumcised. So there goes your argument that circumcision was the thing that matters. So circumcision was the form that religion took. What form has Christianity taken in the West, in, say, in the last decade? The form that Christianity has taken, we now are presuming, is what we need to be passing on to others. So we are, like Israel, the agency through which God wants to bless the world. And he wanted to do it through Israel by the example of their lives. He wants to do it through us 
by the example of our lives, by the example of our churches, by the example of evangelicalism. And we have allowed the sign, if it's a sign that says evangelical Christian or Jesus follower or whatever it is, we have allowed that to be profaned. So that now um, to say that you are an evangelical sounds more like a political statement than a Christian statement. And it just makes us think, well, how, how are we going to change this? How are we going to get a hold of ourselves? And Paul would say, good question. Um, so, so let me remind you, says Paul, that here's what we're all like um, before you go telling people that they better sign, they, they believe this doctrine or that they will commit to living this way to become a part of your church or part of your Christian faith or... Um, you know, don't be out there saying, if you don't vote this way, don't be calling yourself an evangelical, or if you are an evangelical, make sure you're voting this way. Well, that, don't be talking that way. Think about what we're all like. So he says, Let, let's get back to the beginning, and then he goes through the, the litany. And he says, God went looking for anybody that was good. And this is a quote from the Psalms, but it's it's a quote from a couple of places in the Old Testament where God says over and over again, there's nobody righteous, not even one. And you want to go, what, what, are you serious? Like not even one? Not even one. So, so where we all start is whether we are religious or not, we all start from the confession that we are not good. Even as followers of Christ, our resting point is to say, while we have been forgiven our sins, we still sin. We are still sinners. We are not better than the people on the street. But you see, that's what the world thinks we do say. We do say that we're better than they are. So I think there needs to be a whole new stance that evangelicalism takes in, in the West and says, we're sorry for powering up over you. We're sorry for the abuses that you have um, endured in and because of the church. Uh, we've forgotten to say that we are also sinful. We've forgotten to say that we are still on a huge learning curve and growing curve to become people who please God. Because God is right. Left to ourselves, and we struggle with this, left to ourselves, there's nobody good, there's nobody righteous, there's nobody that looks for God. Back when the um, seeker movement began, um, one well-known preacher said, you know, they're having a church for people that don't exist. And sort of the media response to that was, well, yeah, they're, they're trying to have a church for people who are seeking God. And the other notorious preacher said, well, those people don't exist. The Bible says they don't exist. Well, it's nuanced, isn't it? But uh, it's true that as humankind, we are not inclined towards God. Uh, even as followers of Christ, how many times do we have to admit that we are inclined to follow the desires of our sinful nature, the ways of our world? We're inclined to think the way the world thinks. We're inclined to behave the way the world behaves. And Paul says, so why don't we just get this straightened out? Why don't we say, we all together began 
at the starting point, which is admitting that we are desperately in need of being forgiven, desperately in need of a Savior. And God speaks back to that and says, that's been my story the whole way along. The story of the covenant was not the story of God favoring Israel. The story of the covenant was God preparing a way that he could deliver his son as the sacrifice for our sins. So where's time in God's reference zone? We're told in the New Testament that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So it, 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 was, it was not an afterthought. It was not a, oh my goodness, that covenant didn't work. We're going to have to do something different. And Jesus said, well, how about this? That's not the way it happened. Before the, the world was even founded, Jesus was the lamb ready to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of his people. And we're the ones that are the beneficiaries of what God had already decided to do. And we're the beneficiaries of the covenant promises that God made to Israel. And now we, like Israel, can come back to God and say, it was genius what you were doing from the very beginning. It was pure genius. Israel went off in the wrong direction, and Paul was brokenhearted about it. He said, I, I wish that all Israel could be saved. I myself would be willing to be accursed, to, to be punished if, if it would bring Israel back. And to this day, there's the, the, the antipathy between Jewish and Christian humans um, who are arguing each that, that they have understood the story of God properly. Well, we all began at the same place. We all end up at the same place, which is to say we need the grace of God no matter who we are, where we are. Whether we're Jewish or Gentile, whether we are Christian, evangelical, Jesus followers, or um, the nunners, those who say no affiliation, no religion. Um, we're not supposed to bring people who are unaffiliated into affiliation with us. We're supposed to show the love of God, to love God and to love our neighbors, our nuns, um, so that they understand that that's the message that we carry, the message of the love of God. How complicated is, is it? Well, it is pretty complicated, but it's also ridiculously simple. How do you read the law? Jesus said to one of the lawyers who came to him. He said, well, it's, it's simple. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's it. Go and do it. Is it to sign a doctrinal statement? Is it to sign a lifestyle? Those things are interesting and important. But that's not what's at the heart of it. And yet, the world, I think, hears from us what Gentile believers heard from Jewish believers, that you have to do all these things to get in the club. If you don't do these, you can't really be a Christian. And Paul said, no, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. It is simple. It's only grace by faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. It's all that matters. I have a kind of a favorite uh, teacher. His name is Alistair Begg. Alistair's a Scot, and he's been pastoring the same church now in Cleveland for decades and decades. 
And he has a particular sermon that I've heard a few times because pastors do that. They get the good ones and say, okay, I bet these people haven't heard this one, so here we go. Um, and he has a lovely Scottish accent. So he, he imagines the time that um, the thief on the cross comes to heaven. And of course he meets Peter at the gate because that's what always happens. St. Peter is at the gate. And in Alistair's Brogue, um, St. Peter says, so you'd like to get into heaven, would you? Aye. Well then, um, maybe you could just give us a wee bit of your doctrine. What do you believe? I don't know. Well, no. Have you kept the Ten Commandments? No. Well, why in the world would we let you into heaven? You don't know your doctrine. You've broken the law. And the thief looks back at him and says, All I know is the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's grace. He, he did nothing. He didn't have time to do anything past his conversion except die. So he's the quintessential trophy of grace. Presumably lived a life worthy of his sentence. He at least was a thief, if not more. But the man on the middle cross said he could come. We need to live and love the truth of that. That no matter what we've done, no matter what we're confused about and clear about, the only thing that matters is that the man in the middle cross said we could come. That's the grace of God. So why don't we just pray about that. Father, we thank you for um, the fact that your, your people Israel delivered to us um, the whole beginning of understanding who God is and um, what God has done and what God wants. We thank you then for the emergence of um, those, those leaders like the Apostle Paul who, who understood because of your Spirit's enlightenment what the Old Testament meant and what it was foreshadowing. And we thank you then for the, the glorious completed canon of Scripture um, that, that we still uh, are able to, to, um, to just sort through and try to understand. And above all, Father, we thank you that the centerpiece of it all is the baby in a manger who was to be the Christ on the cross. Thank you, Father, for your incredible grace and deep eternal love, for the gift of your Son, and for the work of your Holy Spirit to help us understand the truth. So enliven us again this Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name.